news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. This is our Books with Hooks segment. We have a very special guest with us, and I'm going to tell you all about our special guest, Alicia Clancy. She is an executive editor at Amazon Publishing, specifically with the Lake Union Imprint and Mindy's Book Studio, which includes historical fiction, book club books, women's fiction, and more. Prior to joining Amazon Publishing, Alicia worked at St. Martin's Press, a Macmillan imprint. She has a British husband and an Australian cattle dog named Whiskey. Some of her favorite activities include hiking, soul cycle. She currently lives in California, and she is from Johnson City, Tennessee. And as soon as I was writing that out, I was like, I can't write that out without trying to sing Wagon Wheel, because it's like Johnson City, Tennessee. And anyway, so now I have Wagon Wheel in my head, and everybody else can have Wagon Wheel in their head as well. But welcome to the show. <laughs> It's our one claim to fame. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you here on the show with us. Okay, I am going to read the first query letter. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, thank you for all the shit. With so many alleged writing experts blasting out advertisements at hopeful authors, I immensely appreciate your podcast that sets you apart and shows you really know what you're talking about as authors, agents, and just people who enjoy good books. 
I'm pleased to present the book Witch, a 47,000-word middle-grade fantasy novel full of excitement, intrigue, and surprises, sure to capture any young reader's imagination. Those captivated by sinister tales and moral dilemmas, like The Worlds We Leave Behind by A.F. Harold, will love this story, as well as those who long for the feeling of discovery found in The Last Mapmaker by Christina Surintovat, or Once There Was by Kayash Monsif. Great books are not written by brilliant, all-knowing authors. They are written by book witches, lurking in the shadows and stealing souls to become the world's most compelling characters. With a well-crafted setting and the right catalyst, a book witch only has to drop in the characters to watch the worlds write themselves. Alondra, the book witch, hiding within the eccentric architecture of the historic Blackstone Library, may have found her most desirable soul yet. It belongs to the clever but lonely 11-year-old Lydia Fletcher, who comes to the library daily. Lydia is lured into the magical world where she can enter into any story and live as a character in any book. She captains pirate ships, flies over mountains, and battles monsters, while Alondra tests her with seemingly insurmountable challenges. Using her quick wit and imagination, Lydia overcomes each obstacle, proving herself to be the perfect protagonist. Lydia's ultimate challenge awaits her in the real world, where she will find out if she has the courage and creativity to escape the clutches of Alondra herself. The story provides a satisfying twist and standalone plot, but like any good middle grade book, it has serious potential. The full manuscript is available upon request, if you ask nicely. With a couple of degrees and multiple professional experiences, I have lived many different lives in several different places. Currently, I am living in Grand Rapids, Michigan with my wife, dogs, and grown children lurking close by. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jay Brosman. Thank you for that, Carly. What was your take on the query letter and what was the word count? All right, so the word count came in at 380 words on the query letter. I was really taken with this concept. I thought it was kind of just like sweet and different and fun and like a little bit spooky, which I think is a really awesome combo for middle grade. Middle grade is one of those categories I don't rep really. I don't really rep a lot of it. So it's not something where I know always exactly what's going on in the marketplace for this, but I'm starting to read novels to my son in the middle grade category. So I'm starting to get a sense of, okay, like this is kind of genre expectations, the kind of level of like spookiness or humor or whatever has to go into the balance of this. So I think for me, that checks all of the boxes in that sense. The one thing that I think is really interesting about this book is publishing sometimes has a fascination with this idea of like books about books, which can sometimes really work in its favor if it's unique. Or sometimes to publishing people, it's like we work in the book business, like sometimes that allure isn't there. So I think in this case, because it's kind of like a spooky, you know, supernatural element to it, I think that this is a really fun take. So I think there's a lot of fun to be had here. But in terms of that first line of of the plot paragraph, it says great books are not written by brilliant, all-knowing authors. That caught me off guard a little bit because like I, I work in book publishing and then I'm like, oh, are you talking about like you, the author? Or, are you t- or is this like a preamble for the concept of the book? So I think that would be really fun jacket copy. I didn't really know if that made a lot of sense as query letter copy. So that was one thing I had a note of. The other thing that I think is kind of missing here is like wrapping our head around the world. Like, did the people do the writing or it's like the witches make the writing actually appear? Like, what parts are magical? What parts are real? That really wasn't that clear to me because I think the concept is really fun in terms of like witches writing books. That's really cool. How magical are they? All of this stuff is still kind of to be discovered and to be seen. So that piece, I think, definitely has to come through here. The other thing that I think is missing is the obstacles and the stakes in the real world because 
it seems like we kind of understand there is a magical premise, which again is awesome. I think it's a great magical premise, but there has to be stakes in that world and in our world. And right now it's just like, oh, she just goes off and does things in that world, which is cool, flies over mountains, battles monsters. So it seems like potentially in that world, we have some stakes, presumably. In this world though, I don't really get a sense of like what is gonna happen because it says the ultimate challenge awaits her in the real world. Well, she'll find out if she has the courage and creativity to escape the clutches of Alondra herself. So the witch doesn't want her to come back to the world and she's just like fighting to come back. I don't know. I think, again, it sounds like the puzzle pieces are there, but it's really not clear to me. And I know in a query letter, especially in a, you know, a fantastical world, there's a lot we need to get into these 380 words. So I get it. I'm just a little bit confused about like what the kind of magnitude, I guess, of the magic. That would be something that I would want to know a little bit more. And then in terms of the kind of closing elements, I would say your bio was pretty vague. And I don't know if this is intentional. It kind of comes off as intentional, like a couple degrees, multiple professional experiences. I don't know if that was for the sake of the podcast. Again, some people don't want to blast their whole lives on the podcast and that's perfectly fine. They know you don't have to. I would just let you know that if this is something you're sending out to other professionals, it just doesn't really tell us that much about you. And then the little like full manuscript is available upon request if you ask nicely. Like, that came off kind of snarky to me. I don't know if I'm just like jaded or something, but I was like, I read a lot of query letters. So I don't think that we need that. Again, maybe that tone would come off differently to somebody else, but I don't know if it was working for me in particular. But yeah, I don't know. I think this is a really fun premise. It's just like, it does the query letter execute this vision. I'm not sure about that. So Alicia, I'm going to hand it over to you for you to tell us what you thought of this query letter. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we agree on, though I'll start with what we disagree on. And I loved the, if you ask nicely, like it made me chuckle. I thought it added a little personality, which to go back onto another one of your points, I thought could have been missing a little bit from the author bio. So I thought that that did a little to mitigate some of the vagueness for me. I felt like there was a little bit author personality shining through, but I did have the same note about the bio and whether it was vague intentionally, like, are you in the CIA? Do you want to add a little snarky joke about that? If, if that's why you're being, you know, so close shadows about it, but I wasn't sure. And I think that if there's no reason to be intentionally vague, I would recommend adding in more specifics. You never know what an author or an editor or an agent might relate to or find in common with some of your own experiences. So I think that it would be a service to add a little more specificity to your bio should there not be a reason to keep it vague beyond maybe just not wanting it broadcasted on the podcast. So those are a couple of things we agreed on. I also found myself confused about the premise of the witches and how exactly that magic and the world building worked around it. So I was in agreement with Carly there. That was my first note. And then my other note was around why we spend so much time on the book witch versus the protagonist who I believe is narrating the story. So if it's a dual narrative and we're getting both perspectives, I think that might make a little more sense. But one thing that had stood out to me on the query letter is that we don't even get introduced to our protagonist until we're about halfway through the letter. And and I feel like that is something that perhaps I would adjust to have her running the show and then we get introduced to the challenge and the stakes with the witches after we know who we are cheering for in the novel. 
I also agreed about the stakes being unclear in the real world. My understanding of it, if I'm putting the puzzle together the right way, is that she is at risk of being dropped into a story and taken out because she is such a perfect protagonist. But again, because I didn't know how exactly that worked, are all the people in books people from real life who got stolen and put into these stories and therefore we have to defeat all the witches so that people stop getting kidnapped and put into stories or is it something different? So I think I had some of the same questions. I like the idea of the library setting and the books about books. I agree with Carly that that can be overdone, but I think for a middle grade category, it works. And I think they're probably a little less inside baseball of the publishing world that we are in maybe more adult fiction. Although in adult fiction, I also still love books about books, but yeah, it can be overdone. So I think for this particular category, I like it. And I think that it's a good setting for this particular story uh, and makes a lot of sense for the journey that the character is going on. In terms of the setup, I feel like I'm just going backwards. So sorry that I'm going so out of order, everyone. But Going back to the opening, I thought that the comps sounded pretty good. They were, you know, I double checked those. They were pretty recent, which is always a good thing. They all had fantastical elements to them, some prestige. So I thought that those are probably good choices. But along with Carly, I also do not work on middle grade as a part of my career. So I'm not as familiar with the world. But based on looking those up and the pitch letter, I feel like I had a good idea of who the audience for this particular book was. So I thought that those were well chosen. I think that's it for me. Cece, do you want to tell us what you thought? The thing that most stood out to me personally was the world. Like the line, great books are not written by brilliant, all-knowing authors. They are written by book witches. Now that is a line that really stands out. It really piques my curiosity. It makes me want to know more. It gets me really excited. At the same time, unless there's like clarity on what that actually means for our world, which is a point that both Carly and Alicia have made, we don't really get it. Like, you know, like to Alicia's point about are the protagonists in books, were they at once upon a time real people? Can we get them back if they were? Is that possible? Or at least avoid future people from being kidnapped? Do we even want that? Because I want great books. Is it worth the price of kidnapping people? I do not know. This is an ethical dilemma. Point is, I think you have a really delightful premise and I think we're all super engaged with it, as you can see by our conversation. But the world needs clarifying. Because if you mean that the books that the witches write are the great ones and we don't even have access to them in our world, then I think the problem is that it feels too removed. You know, I almost want it to have like a more direct connection with our world. So it's just something to think about. But now let's move on to the pages. Carly, will you give us a summary of what happened in those opening pages? All right, we meet our protagonist. She is at Blackstone Library. Her name is Lydia. It is a very stormy day. We get the sense it is a very like castle-like structure. We understand that it's in Chicago. And her mother works at the library. So she is on her kind of own floor doing work. And our protagonist, she's in her own little nook in the library. She's reading a lot of books. She's kind of like sneaking in snacks. We get the sense that she spends a lot of time there. And Bernice, the librarian that was kind of walking around, checking on everybody, is like telling her to shush because she's making lots of noises. But we get the sense that she's very comfortable at the library. We understand that her mom kind of has a lot going on in her own life and that, you know, Lydia, the reason that she loves the library is she kind of gets to use it as an escape. So it's a very stormy day. There's lots of like thundering, that sort of thing. I think if I caught this right, that there is some sort of like 
potentially magical thing that comes into the room, but it's like, we're maybe supposed to think it's the librarian or maybe not, which I thought was kind of cool. And then there's just kind of like more storms and, and that's where we end. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And what was your take on the execution? All right. So I, I really liked how cinematic the visuals were. I loved the description of the library. And I think like, again, we were talking about like book people reading about bookish books. I think all of us would be like, I would just love to be in a cozy library on a stormy day, you know, with your like cozy sweater and your snacks and and reading great books. So I think there was this like coziness and like nostalgia as an adult reader reading this, which I thought just had so many pluses for it. Because of the kind of like stormy setting, it definitely made me think that there was something ominous on the way, which again, could be just, you know, reader expectation, it could be kind of subverted, and maybe it's not. But I did think, as I said, that there was something kind of hovering in the room at some point, which I thought was interesting. I think there was a lot of description of the setting. And as I said, while I really loved it, it made for a very like stationary experience. I know I talk a lot on the podcast about like how I really like opening pages where there's some sort of movement. And the fact that our protagonist is just sitting down and not doing anything. And it's like the librarian that approaches her. It made for a pretty stationary and stagnant experience. I definitely think, you know, and I made some notes in here, which you guys will be able to see about like what I would cut and what I don't think we need. And there's some instances where I was like, oh, this paragraph, the only information we need to know is that she's 11 and like the rest of it can probably go some things like that. Definitely need to know that her mother works at the library, that sort of thing. But I feel like this was a long five pages to be like, this was a storm. She's in the library. Her mother works at the library. You know, something ominous is on the way. I felt like as a character, I thought she was interesting. I thought she kind of lacked a bit of self-awareness, which made me feel like she was younger than 11. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe that was just me and, and my take on that. I don't know. I didn't know if like her personality and the way she was acting in the age was necessarily all lining up for me. I also felt like because this novel is only going to be 47,000 words that we kind of have to get to the inciting incident relatively early in the book, which how quick are we going to get there? I don't know. This was definitely just a lot of setup for me. So while I liked it, it felt a little bit stationary and definitely felt like a lot of setup, even though it was very atmosphere. Alicia, what did you think? I agree. I thought the atmosphere was very well done. I imagined myself in my cozy sweater with the rain, all the exact same. But I agreed that I thought that there was some repetition and redundancy and the pacing was a little slow because we spent so much time on describing the library, which I think most people will have that kind of memory or that feeling or present day knowledge of what a library is like for them, especially book lovers. So I don't know that it's absolutely needed as much beyond the initial setup. So I agreed with that. There was also for me, some issues in terms of building anticipation, which I think kind of contributed to the pacing issue that we were just talking about. And that is that we're introduced to Lydia, we see her, then we see these like smoky tendrils coming in, and then they disappear. And then we go back to Lydia, and then tendrils come back in, and then they disappear again. And so there's a lot of like, moments of like, you think something's building to nothing that I thought really could be reworked. So we get our introduction. And then we get the smoky tendrils when we're ready for action for those smoky tendrils to result in something, which I think would help speed it along. I also agree with Carly's note that she felt younger than 11. There was a moment within the pages where 
She is kind of pretending that the library staff are pirates on the ship that she's working. And that had a lot of fun. That was kind of the most energetic part of the sample. And I really liked it. But it did make her feel a little younger. Reminded me of like my eight-year-old niece more than an 11-year-old. And so I thought that perhaps... That, along with some word choices that I think felt more mature as well for a middle grade audience, could potentially be rectified during revisions. But generally, I thought it was really cute and charming, and I would love to read a book set in the library during a storm. I also thought that they did a good job of giving little nuggets of background about Lydia, like about the mother, about the fact that her parents were divorced, although that was one of the phrases that kind of caught me as like maybe not phrased for a middle grade audience. I believe it said something about like the end of their marriage, which is probably not how I'd say it for, you know, an eight to 11 year old reader. So those were just some of the kind of things that latched on, but I thought that they did a good job of at least introducing that element. So we understood why she felt lonely pretty early on in the story. Cece, do you want to tell us your take? I really liked all of these comments. You know, I'll say that these pages were very, very well written. I always notice writing on a line level with with the degree of obsession. And there were just a lot of really well written, delightful, adorable lines. I kept highlighting them and saying, Oh, I love this. This is so smart. The main note for me really is the pacing. So really, I'm just agreeing. I do think that you can compress everything that's in these five pages into a page and a half. And I also think that you're missing an opportunity when it comes to her family dynamics. So for example, when Bernice asks her, well, it's Friday evening, I thought the two of you might be going to dinner or maybe to a movie. We're in her her head, right? We're in Lydia's head. And Lydia just says, seriously, mom wouldn't even know how. Lydia answered, keeping her voice low. I think that's an opportunity for a curiosity seed. Maybe she could think to herself, at least not for the past three years. And then we'd wonder, ooh, what happened three years ago? And later on, when we find out that the divorce was three years ago, we would put the piece of the puzzle together. I just think it's really important to make sure to like plant these little seeds so that when the reader, a page later, three pages later, a chapter later, you know, 50 pages later, it doesn't matter, learn something that will make sense of the curiosity seed that came before, their brain will feel rewarded. And that's just really important to keep the reader turning the pages. So I I just wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about how she feels about breaking the rules, for example. She's snacking at the library, right? Does she feel adventurous doing it? Does she feel mischievous? Does she feel... I don't know. I just wanted to know more about her personality with, the, I guess, a degree of depth and layers that I thought was missing. And there's enough nuts and bolts here to make it work if you just add the layers. So I thought you did a really good job overall. All right. And now we will switch gears to our next query letter. Dear Cece, I am submitting to you because of your interest in flawed heroines, dysfunctional families, and atmospheric psychological dramas. I cannot continue without a huge thank you to the entire shit team for the work you all do in helping authors to reach their publishing dreams. I've learned more from this podcast than almost any other class on the craft. I am seeking representation for my novel, The Hawk Screams Loudest from the Sky, a work of literary fiction complete at 84,000 words. This novel is a multi-POV narrative, combining the complexities of tense familial relationships with the abuse perpetrated by white men in positions of religious authority, similar to Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen and God Spare the Girls by Kelsey McKinney, though set against the harsh beauty of the Namibian desert. 28-year-old Eunice Mason is pregnant with her second child when her abusive husband, John, disrupts their lives and moves them to Namibia to be missionaries. Isolated and desperate for connection, with no money or means to leave John, Eunice is drawn to the pregnant Ezra Nadara and her husband, George. 
When Eunice learns that John has been using the mission field as a cover for his involvement with a mysterious company intent on drilling for crude oil that's been discovered under the Kalahari Desert, the decision to help spread awareness is an easy one, despite the threat to her personally. John's actions and those of the oil company will render hundreds of thousands of indigenous people homeless and financially disenfranchised. Contamination of the water source will also drive away threatened species. But Ezra's daughter misinterprets an innocent interaction between Eunice and George and tells John, unwittingly setting in motion a series of events that cannot be stopped. Now, everything is on the line. If Eunice stays in Africa with John and under his subjugation, she keeps her children. But if she continues to fight to regain her voice and newfound independence, she potentially could lose it all. Not only the freedom she's always dreamed of, but her children as well. Inspired by recent current events, it is a story about using religion as a cover for corporate greed and the fight against colonization and climate change. To note, although the main character is a missionary, this is not a religious book. I live in Seattle, Washington with my husband and two young daughters, where I spend my days writing and my nights trying, mostly unsuccessful, to get my children to sleep. In college, I majored in literature and minored in creative writing. In my spare time, I take classes on the craft of writing and participate in two skilled critique groups. Thank you for considering my query. I have enclosed the first pages for submission per your guidelines, and I'm gratified to share them with you. May I send you the complete manuscript? Sincerely, Carrie Lind. Thank you, Cece. Can you tell us how long the pitch was and what you thought of it? The author included the word count, so thank you so much. This is 420 words long. I'll first start with the minor thing. There's a note that says, you know, although the main character is a missionary, this is not a religious book. I think you can delete that. My personal take is that your comps are telling us what kind of book it is. So I don't think that you need to over explain. It wouldn't bother me seeing this. So if you've sent this out already and this, this comment is making you nervous, don't. I just don't think you need it. Let's talk about the plot. By the time I reached the line, unwittingly setting in motion a series of events that cannot be stopped, I thought to myself, hmm, we're getting into vague territory. And then all the lines after that continued to be vague territory. And this did not happen from the beginning, right? Like from the beginning, I am getting lots of specifics. We know that Eunice is in an abusive marriage. We know that she feels alone in this new country. We know that she makes friends with Ezra. You know, we learn that um, she finds out about John's corrupt ulterior motives. We learn that her daughter accidentally makes life complicated for her by sharing a moment she had with George. But then after that, we don't know anything else. And so here's what was going through my mind, okay? Is this the story of a protagonist who has to convince her husband, she loves him, to buy time for, I don't know, a party in which there will be media then, and then she's planning on exposing him at the party? Or is this the story of a protagonist who's going to run with her child, I mean, also the child in, in her belly, to the American embassy? And halfway there, she realizes she can't because her husband has spread rumors that she's unwell and no one will believe her. I don't know. Obviously, none of these is the case because there's no way I guessed your book. But my point is, all that you've told me seems to be set up. You know, I'm wondering, like, the major dramatic question, the climax, that, that big moment. What exactly is going to happen there? What plot-wise is going to happen? Because you're telling me what's happening in her interiority. Things like her newfound independence, her voice, the freedom she's dreamed of. I need more specifics, you know? Like, is this just a matter of her having to get to an embassy? Or is it more complicated than that? Like, I just really wanted more specific information on the plot because that to me is really essential for curiosity. 
And yeah, I think it's a fun, a fun concept and I'll have a lot to see on the pages. But for, for now, that's, that's it for me. Alicia, what did you think? Yeah, I think that the setup started off very specific. As you noted, the comps I felt did a really good job of setting up where this would fit on the bookshelf. And to that point, I also made a note that you could cut the line about not being a religious novel because I thought that that was very clearly established with the context clues that were provided. So I didn't think that that was necessary. I could free up some more word count for you to expand on the things that we do really need to know, which are what the stakes are in this book for Eunice and for everyone else. I think one of the questions I had immediately was related to the multi-POV narrative portion and whose story this actually is, because we're only told really about Eunice and her POV in the pitch letter. So I was curious immediately, who are the other POVs? Why is Eunice the one being focused on here? Who else has a stake in this story? Obviously the people of Namibia, which we learn out with the oil, but whose perspective is being told here? Why are those perspectives being told? And what are the stakes for all of the people who we're going to be introduced to as central characters? And I'm not sure that that was super clear to me from the pitch. So that was one of the questions that I had. I also agree that when we got down to the secret being revealed, things got very vague. The everything is on the line. I'm like, well, what is everything? What is on the line? Why does she think that her children are going to be taken away from her if she were to expose this? There were a lot of questions, and I don't think you have to answer all of those questions in a pitch letter, but I think that you want to set the reader up to have a good grasp of what's at stake. And I think that it could be multiple things here for multiple people, and I'm not entirely sure who the focus is here or why Eunice is the one telling this story, especially considering the setting. So I think that having that context would be helpful to me as an editor to know if this is the kind of book that I want to take on. I also thought that the author bio did a good job of including relevant information about like literature and creative writing, and I am involved in these writing groups. But I would have liked to see just a little more personality there. I think that's kind of like our one place to kind of get a feel for who the author is beyond just a feel for what the story is. And I really do, as I said in the earlier query, I think that that can be really useful for an agent or an editor to have that kind of feeling of connection because we are going to be signing on to work with authors for a very long time, hopefully. And so I think showing a little bit of personality, a little bit of who you are in the query letter is only a good thing. Carly, what did you think of the query letter? All right, I won't go over all the other great notes. So I'll focus on a couple of things that haven't been touched on yet, which is, I don't think it was very clear whether this was contemporary or historical. I really would have, I don't know if I need, we need like a, I don't know, a, a timestamp or something like that. Somewhere in that you could just weave it in pretty simply, right? Like this is, this novel is multi POV contemporary narrative, or you know what I mean? Like there's just throwing in the word contemporary somewhere because I didn't know even the names, I was like, oh, are those like Eunice? Like that could be, you know, a name from the 1800s, 1900s, or it could be contemporary, right? So I would have loved to know, you know, the time frame. And the other thing is in terms of the moving them, right? So it says abusive husband John disrupts their lives, moves them to Namibia to be missionaries. We don't know where from. I'm like from South Africa, from America, from Europe. You know what I mean? Like, I think that context matters in terms of like the experience, because again, we're, we're going on this journey with this character. So I want to know what her background is. So I know how fish out of water is she going to be moving? 
that would have been useful information to me. One of the things I was really drawn to about this project is for a literary novel, this has incredibly high stakes. So the pairing of a potentially literary novel, meaning like my expectations are really high for the quality of writing that's going to kind of emerge here. And for it to have like very like local on the ground stakes, as well as these like global stakes, like characters. I don't know. There's just so many levels here where I have pretty high expectations after reading a pitch like this to think hopefully that it will kind of you know live up to my expectations in terms of what's to come. I think a couple times in the query letter, things sounded a little bit synopsis-y to me. Even the line like, now everything is on the line. I don't know, somehow that felt like a little bit synopsis-like to me. I don't know. So I really got the sense that you were trying to up the stakes, amp up the stakes, underscore the stakes, which was great. But that is part of the vague stuff, right? And like, what does on the line mean even, right? Like, it's just a way of saying, you know, is somebody like in physical danger, emotional danger? Like, what what is on the line, right? Everything is on the line, like her physical life or you know, what is it, right? Her child's life. Like these are all things that matter. And the last thing I just want to touch on was really just like experience, right? Like to me, writing this story requires incredible specificity of like understanding Namibia and the world and just so much. So I just really was curious. I was kind of hoping in the author bio paragraph, I was going to understand a little bit more because it seems like it was inspired by current events, which again, that's a jumping off point for a lot of you know, novels, something like ripped from the headlines, reading the news. I think agents are going to ask about this. So I don't know if this is something that you want to address in the query letter that maybe you've been there or, you know, you have a personal connection to the story. And if you don't just make it clear, maybe, I don't know, somehow that it is really just based on a news headline. I don't know how you want to do that again, because I don't know if you do have a connection to the story. So I'll just leave that there. I'll just chime in that I also had flagged that in the query letter, wondering, you know, what inspired the story. I saw the current events headline. I thought that could be moved up as well earlier in the description. I think that that's something that's interesting to probably agents and editors that it is inspired by a true story that can be a media or PR hook. Um, But I also had the question, you know, around what kind of personal experience you had with this area and or what kind of sensitivity reads might have been employed in writing it, what kind of research was employed in writing it, just because I do think that making sure that we have authentic representation is really important. So those were also questions that I would have liked to see potentially addressed, but are also questions that can come up later in the process. So again, I don't expect everything to be in the pitch letter, but I agree with Carly that that is something that I think editors and agents would like visibility for. Awesome. Thanks for summarizing that so well, Alicia. Cece, why don't you summarize the pages for us and let us know what you thought? So we begin with a timestamp, time and location stamp, Bellingham, Washington, September 2004. The protagonist is talking to her mom and essentially asking for her mom's blessings for her to stay behind and not go with her husband. And she mentions that she's pregnant and her mom does not understand. Her mom thinks she has to go for many reasons, but the main reason because she is bound to her husband. She made a promise before God. And she says, I don't want to go. And her mom says, he needs you. And so we get a little bit on how her family, her family of origin, doesn't understand. And then eventually they go to the airport. It is the Vancouver airport. And at the gate, the flight attendant eyes her belly and her husband, who lights up when he sees new women before him, says something to make the flight attendant laugh. 
and you know she lets them board the plane, which I took to mean probably she's way too pregnant to be flying, but the flight attendant make, made it an exception. The flight is really summarized. We don't really get anything while they're inside the plane. We just have a line break, and then they're at the airport, the airport in, in Namibia, and she is basically taking in the settings, and pretty soon a van arrives with a driver who introduces himself as... George and they're in the car and they're headed to their destination and she's asking questions like will we see wild animals as the city disappears behind them so that is what happens in terms of my take okay I almost feel like I read like this is so interesting to me because I loved the authorial voice right like I thought this was very voicey I thought the lines were very well-written and very interesting and clearly there's a level of emotional depth here that I mean, it was just so well done. I would venture a guess and say that the author just drew from personal experience, from the depths of her own emotionality to to really give us a lot in terms of this protagonist's feelings. And I really appreciate that because emotion is really important. What to me was missing were a few things, some of them easy fixes. So one of them, for example, the query letter mentions that he's abusive, right? Does her mom know that? Is it the kind of abuse where her mom would think it's not abuse because of a generational situation, because of ignorance in the proper sense of the word? Or does her mom not know? Is she keeping information, factual information from her mom? I think that's one of the questions I had. And it's something that I really wanted to know because it would change the dynamics. It would affect how her mom's advice lands for me. Another thing I really wanted to know is... When she arrives in Namibia, and again, it might be a me problem, I've never been, but I didn't get the sense that this was someone arriving in a new country at all. Like there were no, usually when you arrive in a new, entirely new continent, not just new country, right? Like you're over flooded with all these different sensorial experiences. And I didn't get that. And like they're in the car, for example, and we're barely getting anything on what she's seeing out the window, which to me would be a huge thing. So I don't know, I didn't, I didn't see too much on that. And I really wanted to, I felt that, you know, for a story set in a different continent from the one where the protagonist is from a story that is so much about arriving at a new place, my expectations were, were higher when it comes to that. And I also wanted to know when she was talking to, for example, George and asking about the animals, was she saying that with dread or with excitement? Like, did she want to see wild animals? Was she dreading seeing wild animals? I I wanted to know these small things whenever she was talking because I wanted to get to know her better. I feel like everything that's left unsaid tells us a lot about protagonists. So, oh, and also another thing, I have circulation issues, right? So even though I have never flown while pregnant, because that's never been my life situation, even though I'm not pregnant, when I fly, my feet are ginormous. Were her feet not swollen? Like, I also missed things like that, you know, like she's on a plane. Like, is it her first time on a plane? Is it her first time on a plane pregnant? Like what happened to her body? Again, it's just about these little details. They make the situation feel very real to the reader. And I wasn't getting that. And so I don't know if this is fair to say, but to the author, it reads like you do not have lived experience with what you are writing. And so ask yourself what you can do to include that life experience there to convey more senses to to the reader. Yeah, so I would agree that on a line level, I think she's a really talented writer. I felt, especially in the opening pages, a sense of emotional connection to her and her hesitance to leave with her husband to go to Namibia. So I felt that very viscerally. I thought she did a good job of kind of increasing that 
internal tension as we got closer and closer through the conversation with her mother. And I actually thought that she did a good job of layering in subtle clues to that relationship. So I feel like I got the sense from the pages that her mother didn't want her to go either, but felt she didn't have a choice. We also learned that her father is in the church through a very subtle clue about the house that they live in being part of the clergy. So I think that she did a good job of making those little hints kind of subtle and we can kind of see, or I could, um, I might be reading into it too much, but I got the sense that her mother had lived this life of duty to a man involved with the church and now is kind of foisting that upon her daughter, even though I think she does understand some of the troubles that might come along with that. And I think we also got that clue from her relationship with her sister and the fact that her sister was really mad at her and not even willing to say goodbye. So I think there was some kind of level of the family knowing that there was something not right in their relationship. And so I think that added to the kind of feeling of reluctance. But I do think that clues were pretty subtle. And we know from the pitch that her husband's abusive, but I don't know if we've been given that on the pages early enough to understand some of the other emotions that we're being told she feels. So we're being told she feels very fragile, that she feels breakable, that she feels like she's been molded into something that's not herself. But I feel like I'm being told those things rather than shown those things. And so that's where once we kind of got on the plane, I feel like we lost some of that internal connection because we didn't have the context to back it up. I also agreed in terms of sensory details. I feel like we had a really good understanding of Seattle. They talked about, you know, the grass being burnt down in, in August. And having lived in Seattle, I can confirm that the grass is like that and the rose is still kind of thriving. Like, I feel like there were a lot of visual examples of Seattle and I didn't get that sense once she got off the plane. We know that it was hot and that there were a lot of noises that she couldn't quite comprehend, but that's about it. And I agree that like in a foreign country, for the first time that you're going there, you're looking at the vegetation, you're looking at the clothing choices, you're listening to the sounds, what music is playing, what are you sensing aside from heat and language that isn't really described in any kind of way. So that was something that I also agreed felt missing. And I wasn't sure if the author had actually been to the place that was being written about based on that intro. Again, it's the first five pages that could certainly come out, but I would recommend bringing it up sooner if that's the case. Same note with like the animals. I also thought that there was some tension being introduced between her and George. There was a lot of eye connection. It almost set up that there was going to be some kind of physical attraction between the two, but never quite going there and and are told that she feels shame over making this eye contact. And I don't know if that's because of the abuse and not being able to make eye contact with the man. I don't know if that's because she's feeling this early shred of attraction and that's the shame she's feeling. I was a little unclear about like where that feeling was stemming from. So it all kind of goes back to me not feeling like I have enough context to have an emotional connection with her, but I'm being put into a situation where I feel like I'm being told I'm supposed to have this really intense emotional connection with her. So I think that there's just a bit of a gap there and a little work to do to kind of bridge the two. But I thought that again, on on the line level, I thought the writing was quite well done. And I think that that's one of the, you know, kind of first hurdles to get over is having that kind of sense of voice that CC commented on. I, I agree that there is a good voice there and there's there's work to build upon here. All right. So thank you both for those very thoughtful ideas. I'm going to try to try to add to it and, and chime in a little bit here. You know, I think I was feeling 
I, I liked the second half of the sample more than the first half, even though the first half felt a bit more like, I don't know, a little bit more real. And I think it's just because of the specificity that everybody is pointing out. I think for me, this is the thing about literary fiction is some people are going to like a certain style. Other editors are going to like it this way. Some agents are going to like it this way. And for me, it felt very staccato. It felt very distant. And my personal taste in terms of the type of literary fiction that I am drawn to, I had a really hard time connecting with the first half here because I think I was just caught up in how like, I, you know, I use the word choppy, just meaning like short sentences, lots of punctuation. It was tricky for me to kind of get into that first page. I was, I was really unpacking like the stylistic choices and the structure choices where that really took me out of the moment of like being on the page here. That said, I did like the second half better. I think it's just because I liked the way that it just seemed like the author just settled into the pages a bit more. We just had longer sentences and there was just a bit more time to kind of breathe into the actual writing. But ultimately, I completely agree with what you guys have said, which is what was she smelling? What was she seeing? You know, all, all of the like the food, like did, was she hungry when she got off the plane and she needed to eat? If she's as pregnant as we think she is, she's probably starving. <laughs> and she's probably thinking like, what do I eat? And I don't know. And you know, all of these questions. And I think really the only the kind of, you know, quote unquote excuse I made up in my mind for potentially these actions is that she's really tired, that she had an, a child on her lap for this entire flight. She's massively pregnant. Like she just must be so tired, like bone weary, tired. And if you are hot and you are nine months pregnant and like and your child slept on you for the past eight hours or however long your flight was much probably way longer than that, if it was a direct flight, I just can't imagine the position that she's in. So if this was a stylistic choice to say like this character is used to suppressing her emotions because of this abusive relationship I just wanted to see a bit more of that and, and just kind of get that on the page it was just hugely lacking to me so again I thought like maybe she's just really tired maybe this character can't plug in right now to the emotionality that we need as a reader because like she's so tired and she can't turn on her brain in that sense like that was kind of my only I don't know my only explanation for it that said, she was really able to dial into George, which I thought was really interesting, because if she's completely tired, completely burnt out, you know, so overwhelmed with this experience, she's really able to dial into George, right? So then I'm like, oh, it, clearly this character is able to kind of plug into something. And it's him. So again, we need some self-awareness to be like, why is that that I am plugged into George and I can't plug into the rest of the situation? Is it because I'm numb to whatever is happening in my family life? So anyway, all this to say, we're putting a lot of pressure on these first five pages to perform. And we know that and there's obviously, you know, so much to cover. And it's it seems very interesting. I'm just like very curious about where this is going. And again, what kind of experience this author has with this subject matter, because clearly, we're going to be going deep here. So yeah, that's my notes. Thank you, everybody for tuning in to our show. Thank you so much to Alicia Clancy for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of the novel Junie, which was longlisted for the inaugural Carol Shields Prize for Fiction, the memoir Dear Current Occupant, winner of the 2018 Vancouver Book Award, and longlisted for the George Riger Award for Social Awareness in Literature, and Braided Skin. Her essays have appeared in multiple Canadian and American publications, previously the managing editor at Room Magazine, and the director of the Growing Room Festival in Vancouver. She has also worked as a poetry professor at the University of Toronto and at the University of British Columbia and as a literary agent at the Transatlantic Agency. She's now founded her own literary studio, Breathing Space Creative, through which she's launched the Forever Writers Club, a membership for writers focused on creative sustainability, the Thrive Coaching Program, and the Rise Author Care Program. It's my pleasure to welcome Shalene Knight. Shalene, welcome to the show. Yay, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. 
I'm so excited to chat with you. I became aware of your writing a few years ago when my agent, Cece Lira, was like, you have got to read Dear Current Occupant. <laughs> and when word of mouth, when my agent tells me to read something, I damn well do. Um, but, you know, wow, Shaleen, as they say in the classics, Holy shiznit, Batman. <laughs> that is one heck of a bio. Now, we're always saying on the podcast, be a good literary citizen. Mm. And honestly, I can't think of anybody who epitomizes that more than you. I want to focus on each of the initiatives you've launched through Breathing Space Creative mm. before we actually get to talking about your book. So can you start telling us about the Forever Writers Club? Yes, the Forever Writers Club is essentially a community, a small community of writers where we focus on some of the things that we can't seem to find in the mainstream literary world. So we focus on mindset, building boundaries, all the things connected to the mental health side of being a writer. And so, yes, we look at craft, but we kind of have that on the back burner. And we really want to focus on how do we take care of ourselves? when we're writing? How do we deal with rejection? How do we hold space for each other when we're venturing out into that world of publishing? How do we hold community then? So we even talk about like what we eat, how we take care of our bodies. We go really deep with that and we really just kind of, I guess, appreciate this holistic approach to writing. So the Forever Writers Club for me started from this desire to provide the supports that I didn't feel like I had as a writer. You know, and I think when you're a marginalized creator and you're thrust out into this world, there's just so much that people don't tell you. So I really appreciate this podcast, especially because there's so much that we don't know. And we often have these really big expectations once our books are out there. And so the club is also meant to help you build out realistic expectations of, of what it means to be a writer, what it means to potentially make a living as a writer as well. And again, bring folks down to reality and help them make informed decisions about their, their writing practices. So that's the Forever Writers Club in a nutshell. I love all of that. And you know what? On the podcast, we do our best to tell people these things and manage expectations, yeah. but none of us are marginalized authors. And so we can't speak from that experience. Mm. And I feel like marginalized authors have so much more pressure put on them because it's like they need to speak for a whole group of people mm -hmm. when they have success you know everybody looks to them to speak for everybody in that group and nobody does that with white writers nobody's mm -hmm. like well you have to you know stand up and speak for a whole group of people so can you speak a bit about that as well yes definitely I love this I think there's an opportunity as a community as a writing community to also think about how can we remove a lot of that pressure for marginalized writers and this is something that I, I try to have conversations about as well you know I think it could be a wonderful thing to feel like you've got a potential solution for a community that is struggling with something, but that's a lot of weight to carry to feel like you are the only one. So I think part of the, the solution here is that we have to look at, we have to get to the root of a lot of these things. What does it mean for you to be a writer? What does that take from you? And how can we as a literary community assist in giving back and filling that up? And this is going to be unique for everyone. And this is where the Forever Writers Club really looks at the individual writer. So again, who is the storyteller? Who is this unique human being? And how can we support them? So we ask a lot of deep questions in terms of, you know, what, what gives you energy 
and what takes your energy. And we just keep following that thread and we always unpack something unexpected, which I think is quite beautiful. Sometimes we just think, oh, we just don't have enough time. We have full-time jobs. We have kids to take care of, all these different things. But when we get down to the root, we might find that that barrier is something that we just didn't expect. And sometimes it's connected to being a marginalized creator. And sometimes, magically, it isn't. And so part of that, I think part of the literary community really needs to understand that when you're a marginalized creator, sometimes you will have a problem that is not tied to being a marginalized creator. And that is really important to acknowledge as well. So that's why looking at the whole writer becomes so important because you never know what you will unpack. So in the club, we actually have a lot of live sessions. We even have a let it go session, which is really fun. So every 15 minutes on Friday, I go live with my community and I just talk about something that I want to let go of. And that really inspires people to look at what they've been holding on to. And we always attach it to our creative project. So if I picture myself letting go of this belief, this idea or this thing, what would it look like for my creative project? And we're always, always trying to put those connections together. So it's super fun, but it's definitely deep, heavy work. But the club is also for everyone. It's open for everyone. And so I love just kind of seeing the types of writers that are coming in. We have folks who really want to work on publishing and then folks who just want writing to be a regular part of their everyday. No desire to publish at all. And I love when these two people are in the room. Ooh, it's funny. It's fascinating. The conversations that come from that relationship, they're beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I just think of myself as a creator. I think my biggest problem is that I'm a huge people pleaser mm-hmm. and, and I really want to do so much. But often doing that is at the expense of my own creative time and my creative resources, which is why I'm now stressed out of my mind trying to finish a book that I should have finished months ago because I'm unable to say no to things and I'm unable to put up boundaries, right? Mm. So, you know, it's that constant push and pull. And for each person, it's different because there's, I know a lot of people who are like, I have no problem saying no. I'm defending my creative space. Here it is. And I'm protecting it. But, you know, that's something that for me is something that I know I really have to work on. And for our listeners, for many of them, they're going to have their own things that they need to work on. So I love how you come at it from all different angles. And for our listeners, if these are things, you know, that that you're struggling with, please look up the Forever Writers Club and, and see if you know, this might be a space that you might thrive in. Okay, let's talk now about the Thrive Coaching Program. What is that about? Mm-hmm. Another initiative that, oddly enough, started from the writing of the book, Let It Go. So as I was writing this book, I was kind of forced to investigate myself and all the sides of myself, the creative side, the writer's side, the coach side, all these different things I really had to look at. And what I noticed was happening was that I started to organically drop off things that didn't serve me anymore. So even like negative habits, and we all have them, might be smoking, it might be, you know, it could be anything. But I noticed that those things started to kind of raise their hand a little bit as I was writing this book. And so I really kind of thought about that and looked at it. And what I realized was happening was that I was evolving as a person. I was focusing on this personal growth. And from that, the letting go kind of became a byproduct of the work I was doing on myself. And that was emotional for me to walk through. And so I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what if I built a coaching program 
that kind of followed this same thread. So we're going to look at all these different aspects of our lives. We're going to interrogate them. We're going to figure out what it means to work on ourselves and see what happens. And so the coaching program essentially is, it follows my say no with love method, which is a seven step method, but it goes deep into each one of those things. And you have live coaching calls with me. We look at, again, all those things I already talked about, boundaries, letting go of the people, pleasing, and just finding a way to manage your energy in a way that feels right for you in that moment. But I also teach folks in that program how to revise. So something that works for you in December, January, February might not work for you in June and July as the the seasons change. And as you grow and evolve as a person, how do you go back and look at those tools and revise them? So in the Thrive program, we look at that and we investigate it. And so it's really fun just to see clients move through that program and to look at where they started. And then to look at where they are after they exit the program. And it is so powerful because we also focus on tracking your growth. So as things kind of move and as you grow and evolve, you look back and you're like, oh, my goodness, like I just did a ton of work. So it allows you to appreciate some of the non-tangible, I guess, changes as well. So I the Thrive Coaching Program is, I would say, my heart and soul. It's very similar to the Forever Writers Club, except that we don't focus solely on writing. We kind of zoom the lens out. And so anyone can be a part of the the Thrive Coaching Program. If you want creative balance, that's the spot for you. Yeah, we're going to talk more about the seasons as Shaleen has discussed them in Let It Go or how she's structured that book. But before we get to that, the last thing, tell us a bit about the Rise Author Care Program. Mm-hmm. The Rise Author Care program was actually a beta program that I built specifically for authors. And I've since then closed that down and I've replaced it with a guided journal for authors, which is going to be out in 2025. So that journal itself is based on the program, but essentially same idea. We're going to look at the mindset stuff, but we're going to focus solely on what it means to write a book and then to have it exist in the world. How do you navigate events? How do you deal with media promoting your book? And at the same time, taking care of yourself and highlighting your superpowers. So even doing something like this, doing a podcast for me is so energizing. I love doing this. What if you have an author who just the thought of this makes them feel like, "Eh," like, I don't want to do this. How can we build a container for them to still be able to promote their books in a healthy way that aligns with who they are? as a person. And so that's what the author care idea is all about. But all these things are pretty much the same thing, just dedicated to a specific kind of person. And then looking at how deep we actually go with these ideas. So in the Forever Writers Club, we we go deep. But of course, it's it's me, one of me and a lot of other people, whereas the Thrive Coaching Program, me and one other person. So it really just depends on the situation. But all of these different offerings are, are linked. Yeah. And I love what you just said there now, because, you know, publishers will say to you, do the social media that Mm. you're comfortable with. We don't expect you to be on everything, but they do expect you if they've set up a podcast interview, they do expect you to do it. And if they found an opportunity for an essay, they do expect you to do it. And so it is difficult to say, this isn't my jam. This is not something that I'm going to enjoy or necessarily be good at or whatever, and I'd rather do it this way. So it's also great that you're giving writers these tools to learn how to advocate for themselves, Mm -hmm. to 
still do the job, but just perhaps do it in, in a different way rather than having to tick off every box and be everything to everyone, yeah. which I think is why so many authors after launching are so drained because yes. they were like, nobody warned me about this. <laughs> I've thrown myself into this. I've done everything I can. And it it's, can be really depleting. That's exactly it. You hit the nail. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. And and part of it, too, is thinking you either have to say no or you have to say yes. What about the happy medium? What about the saying yes with conditions and, and following up with a request and, and asking for more information so you can make an informed decision? Like I'm the kind of writer who if I'm going to an in-person event, I want to know everything about the venue because the lighting matters to me. Like what is the dress code? Like Just give me all the information so that I can adequately prepare myself and then feel Like I can be my whole self on stage versus showing up as a a version of myself that doesn't feel good. And I've really been paying attention to this with the last book and this upcoming book. How can I put myself out there and really promote my books, but do so in a way that really allows me to elevate and highlight who I am and who I'm becoming as a writer. So that's what's, I think, changed over the last couple of years for me. Even I see my own growth, which is weird. But that's what happens when you really pay attention to to who you are and who you, how you want to show up. Yeah, I, I love all of that because we create art yes. and our art then becomes commercialized. It becomes an object to be sold. And in a way, we become objects mm. to be sold, you know, like our publishers sell us. And so we feel like commercial objects as well, rather than artists who are creating this art. So it's very important to constantly step back step back from that and and recenter realign reframe everything for yourself before you you get lost in all of that mm-hmm. so something that i want to ask you and it ties into this shaleen is you have a very unique 360 degree view of publishing and of writing so not only are you a poetry professor a fiction author a memoirist but you've also been a literary agent now so many poets i know care about the art itself for the sake of art Mm -hmm. a lot of them feel like they'll be sullying the art if they try and sell it if they try and commercialize it and and they just want it to stay this bright shining piece of art that isn't sullied by the commercial side and then there's others who are trying to sell it you've seen all sides of this you've seen that art can be art and beautiful and shining but if you want it to be published it needs to be turned into something that as a literary agent you can go to a publisher and be like here is this packaged thing that I'm trying to sell you so can you speak a bit about you know coming at it from all of those sides as well Mm -hmm. I think this is I feel like I have a I definitely have a leg up in this industry because of this 360 view. And for the most part, I think it was all by accident, <laughs> having all of my my feet in all of these different pools of water. But when it comes to the writing aspect, I feel like poetry for me is the foundation for all writing. If you can master poetry, it will show in your fiction. It will show in your nonfiction writing. It will show in just everything that you do. So I feel like, again, I, I started with poetry, but that led me to all of these different genres because I wanted to figure out what makes sense for me as a writer. Let me try all of these different things. And mostly because I'm nosy and I'm like, well, what are the fiction writers doing? What is it like in this world? Let me try it out. And so that's kind of how I move in terms of my writing. But when I decided to jump into being a literary agent, that was a bold move for me. And in my mind, I was thinking to myself, how can I put myself in a position to really support authors and to work closely with them? 
And that's where the light bulb went off. Oh, literary agent. And then I was in that role, did that for three years, and I realized this is not the role for me. It doesn't suit my personality. I am not a born salesperson. If you put me in a call where I have to pitch another author's book, I'm like, no, let me come back to you. Let me think about this. I'm also a slow processor, so it just didn't make sense for me. And it ended up draining a lot of my energy. And I was, you know, always in awe of people who do this full time. I'm like, you folks are amazing. And so I had to let that go. And that was really difficult for me because I'd formed some beautiful relationships with with authors and colleagues. But just kind of taking what I've learned there and again, just moving the camera and saying, okay, well, how can I do what I've always wanted to do, which is support writers and creatives and, and busy entrepreneurs and build something out in a way that aligns with my energy. So again, the Thrive Coaching program made sense for that. Doing some teaching, being a creative writing instructor also really helped with that because I wanted to work with authors who hadn't yet published and who were really interested in building a full-length project. So through my creative writing instruction, I also did the same thing I do in every other category. I filtered in that, that author care almost like indirectly. I'm like, let's talk about what it will look like for you to be out there in the world with this book. What are your dreams and goals? And so some writers would say, oh, yeah, I can't wait to make like a million dollars with my book. And I'm like, OK, hold on, hold on. Like, let's talk about the reality of book advances, but also how having a book in the world can be a catalyst for all kinds of different opportunities. So anytime I'm working with a writer who has these big ideas of becoming a millionaire from their book, I'm like, huh, let's move the lens over here and talk about this book as a catalyst for a creative career that maybe you didn't anticipate. So all these different vantage points, I think, are connected to one main core, which is how can I help creatives have a healthy, balanced career? And so it really depends on the person because, again, not everyone has those big, bold dreams of taking their, their poetry book and making it you know, something for the world. And it really depends. Every writer is different, and I think all we have to do is ask them. That's something we often skip. We make the assumption. If someone's writing, they automatically want to publish. And that's not always the case. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so for our listeners, I'm just going to read the jacket copy to you for Let It Go. Free yourself from old beliefs and find a new path to joy. So here we go. I'm going to read that to you. This warm, candid, and essential book will guide you to carve a new path to joy as unique as each of us. Written by the founder of Breathing Space Creative Literary Studio, acclaimed writer and editor, Shaleen Knight, Let It Go draws on personal experience and the advice of leaders from various Black communities to share hard-won tools for joy discovery. Tools such as how to say no with love, how to call back activities that feel good, how to reshape communication with those closest to you, how to revise language, and most of all, how to learn to let go in order to redefine what we think joy is. Organized around the seasons and the natural cycle of reflection and renewal, Let It Go showcases, through conversation and solitary reflection, the broad spectrum of black realities and reveals the colorful kaleidoscope of joy and your own ways to find it. So that's our jacket copy. Something that struck me with this, Shaleen, was that, you know, again, as writers, we keep getting told that the aim is to find something with crossover appeal. Mm. The broader the demographic that your book can appeal to, the better. So if it's fantasy, but also YA and there's romance and older people and younger people and gay people and straight people will love it, then you've hit the sweet spot. And this book, talking about finding joy, you could have 
pitched it to everyone. And yet you had it very clear in your mind who the demographic of your audience would be. By saying that it was around um, the broad spectrum of black realities. So I love your intentionality here. And I love that you're saying it is perfectly fine for a book to be marketed at a specific demographic. Not every book needs to be for every single audience. Mm -hmm. And if you have it very clearly in your mind who you are speaking to, who you want to pick up this book, I think it means that that book can just be so much richer, so much more focused to the people who need it. So can you speak a bit about that as well? Mm -hmm. I think the audience is incredibly important, and it also helps you as the writer of this book to self-evaluate. Because I think, again, in publishing, we, we want our books to be successful. But for the most part, we have no idea what that means. And so we are judging ourselves based on what we see our peers doing. And for me, I am all about how do I compete with the last version of myself? And so when I know who I'm speaking to, and I know I can get the book in those people's hands, everything else becomes a bonus. And again, it allows me to show up in a way that makes sense for me because I know exactly who I'm speaking to. And I'm not trying to be that person that is for everyone that's not going to work out and your audience is going to lose trust in who you are and what you're doing, which is something that I, I think a lot about. So I think this idea of audience is incredibly important, but it needs to make sense for you as a writer and realize that that can change over time. So asking yourself what your specific goals are, how can you build up a readership? So you might want to stick to the same genre and really make sure your writers know who you are so they can anticipate that next book in that same vein, where I kind of broke all of those rules and I'm jumping all over the place, but that was important to me to be able to really feel out the genres and to find the one that makes sense for me. And I think with Let It Go, I found that genre. This feels like this is the Shaleen that has been waiting to come out and has been experimenting for years and years. And finally, it brought her here. So I'm happy with the book and, and I hope that it finds my audience. I really do. Yeah. And you know what? I am not a black reader. I am a white writer. I'm a white reader. And I loved this book as well. You know, there's yes. the personal universal elements. So, you know, for our listeners, because, you know, that is kind of Shaleen's, that's who she's speaking to does not mean that it excludes other readers. Yes. I absolutely loved this book. There was so much that spoke to me in this as well, but I could understand why she was focusing on the demographic that she was. Mm -hmm. We don't have much time left, Chalene, so I just want to get through. I love how you structured the book in terms of the seasons, yes. and you spoke about the seasons earlier. So can we speak about your intentionality when you sat down to outline this book, how you decided that that was the way you were going to go, and then mm -hmm. how you worked everything else around that? Yes, I think when you as a writer can figure out the shape for your book, everything starts to make sense. Shape is something I think about all the time. If I'm editing and I'm working on another project, shape is everything. I dream about it. And this just happened to me last night, so I won't go off on a tangent about that. But when I, when I picture a shape in my head, it is so clear. So for me, I was really struggling to write the book. And I think because I was trying so hard to write to something I think my editor might have wanted. And as soon as I let that go, and I'm like, Shalane, just do what you know you want to do. And so I'm walking outside. I do what I always do. I pay attention to the world around me. I slow down. And I'm like, how am I feeling right now in this moment? How am I feeling right now in the spring? And it was then it was like, oh, okay, the seasons. This is so connected to who I am as a person. Why don't I use that as a shape? Because I know 
I can physically feel, I can see, I can sense how I change throughout the seasons. How can I get that on the page? And then it just all made sense for me. I knew about all the different things I wanted to speak about. For example, the deep listening section and thinking about how that connected to me in that particular season. What does it mean to really think about belonging and home? Something I've been writing about my whole life. What does that look like in the winter? And then all these things just started to come out. But it was really important for me as well to have conversations with other Black leaders. And so calling in, you know, Alex L., who's this wonderful advocate for self-care. And I, I met her through Instagram. And then calling in other writers who I admired, like David Cheriandi and Taya Mutanji, calling them into the room and learning, you know, what does it look like for them to experience joy through the seasons? So that really informed how I wrote the book, having the conversations, thinking about the shape and zeroing in on this core audience that I really wanted to speak to, while also being welcoming for other people who didn't fit into that demographic. This is for you, too. And that felt right for me. That felt like a, a loving, the loving book that I wanted to put out in the world. Last question. Yeah. You said that this was the book that helped you say, this is the Shalene. This is the writing that I want to do. Mm -hmm. And so everything is a process. You had to write Junie and Dear Current Occupant. You had to go through all of that. You had to start everything that you did. You had to let go of the things that you let go of to get to the point where you were able to write this book. But at the same time, you now have an audience and you have a platform. And I want to speak a bit about that as well, because I think that there are many writers out there who want to write in nonfiction, who want to write in this space, but it's so difficult because like if you're a debut novelist, it's fine. You don't need the platform. So long as the book's good, there you go. But when you're writing this kind of book, nonfiction, publishers are like, who's your platform? Yes. How many followers do you have, etc. So, So can you give them some advice in terms of, how they know once they're at the point where they can put this kind of book out into the world and the work they need to do beforehand? Mm -hmm. Very good question. I think really just focusing on what your goals are and what does it look like to show up for you? Because again, building a platform has to, has to put you out there. You have to be out there talking about all kinds of things. So can you pick a topic or take a stance or have an opinion that makes you feel comfortable, but also puts the spotlight on you. So for me, you know, I've got all these different opinions. I don't believe we need more time to do the creative thing. We just need to better manage our energy. That is my kind of unpopular opinion, but I've been using that to splinter out into all these different areas. So what is your angle? What is something you are really into? What is something that makes you you? And how can you talk about that as widely as possible. And thinking about engagement is something I think we kind of skip. So I would rather have, you know, two to 5,000 engaged followers than a million people who would never spend a dollar on anything that, <laughs> that I put out there. And I feel like I have that. I feel like my followers trust me. It's a smaller following, but they trust me. If I put something out there, I can see everyone raising their hand saying, I want that. And that means something to me. So really kind of building out your own rubric for what it means to have a platform. And then how can you communicate the value of that platform to the person in charge of making a decision about your book? Those are the things I've been thinking about and that I help authors with. I'm not a platform expert by any means. Some things just happen by accident. But just if you're comfortable with putting yourself out there in a way that aligns with who you are, then that's you taking control over how you show up. And that's where your energy reserves come into play. So if you're putting yourself out there in a way that drains you, good luck, because how are you going to 
maintain that. So if I'm out there doing podcasts, I'm nourished. I know that. If I'm out there doing live video sessions, I love that. I know that. So make sure that whatever you're doing to be visible aligns with your energy. And then, you know, possibilities are endless. Really, that's my advice. I love that. And I think authenticity as well is just so important. Like you say, you know, too often we're comparing ourselves to other people and are trying to be like other people. And and when we do that, we come across as inauthentic and that's draining. And when you're able to just sit down and be like, this is me, guys, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I think, you know, that's nourishing for yourself and your followers 100% connect with that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shaleen, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Yeah. For our listeners, we are linking to Let It Go on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You can buy it there, support an independent bookstore and support the podcast at the same time. Shaleen, we hope to have you back again. Yes, I hope to be back. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.